Gresham College presents Microcredit, a Development Miracle or False Promise by Avinash Persaud, Mercer School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Good afternoon, everyone. One of John Maynard Keynes's famous dictums, which I've updated, is that if you owe the bank £100,000, you owe the bank £100,000. If you owe the bank a hundred million pounds, you own that bank. And if you intend to go through your life spending your way into a significant stake in the banking sector, microcredit is not for you. But what is microcredit? In some circles, that might be dismissed as the development crowd, government agencies, non-government organizations. Microcredit has become so trendy that it's used to describe such a broad church of activities that it's not really clear what it is anymore. And there will be some of you in this audience who haven't come across microcredit before. Now, I hesitate to give a definition of microcredit because I'm sure it will discriminate against somebody somewhere who will resolutely insist that what they're doing is different and yet it's also microcredit. But for the purposes of some common understanding, let me try. I think, in essence, there are three things about microcredit. First, it's not aid or charity. The lenders expect to get their money back with interest. Second, the size of loans, and clearly, therefore, of repayments, are small, tiny. And third, in designing the lending practices, these microfinance institutions, their strong intent, whatever the right or wrong is, is to alter the initial conditions of poverty, wherever they are, be it in a poor part of Manchester or a poor part of Mozambique. They want to alter the conditions of poverty, to break the cycle of poverty. To give you some more context on microfinance institutions, the interest charged varies depending on the type of organization and the cost of money in different countries. In Bangladesh, where microfinance is particularly well entrenched, commercial loans carry an interest rate of around 10%, but microfinance, microcredit loans, charge around 22%. So we're not talking about the cheapest of money, though it's still considerably cheaper than the loan sharks or informal money lenders who otherwise would be the source of capital in many of the rural areas we're talking about. And indeed, over the last 20-odd years, if you take into account of the high inflation rates we've had in some of these countries, real interest rates are often very low, sometimes even negative. In terms of the size of loans, we really are talking about small numbers, as low as $10. Again, in Bangladesh, the average is $25. It's small. In the UK, if you saw that in your bank statement, you'd think it was a bank charge. But as the proponents argue, $25 can buy you a lot of seeds. I've used Bangladesh as an example a couple of times, partly because the most famous microcredit institution in the world is Bangladesh's Grameen Bank, which began 
as a project in the village of Jorba in 1976, led by Professor Mohammed Yunus of the University of Chittagong. Grameen means village in the Bangla language. It is an inspirational example of how microcredit goes beyond small loans. 95% of Grameen's 4.4 million borrowers are women. They own 90% of Grameen Bank itself. And Grameen has established many offshoots. The latest one, I think, is Grameen Phone, which finances uh, women owning mobile phones in distant villages, uh, and they then charge the villagers to use that phone. To a new, uh, a new initiative, Grameen for Struggling Members, which is Grameen Bank for Beggars. Now, you'd think this was a dangerous thing to do for a bank, but actually loan repayment at Grameen is an amazing 99%. And the bank has made a profit in 26 out of 29 years. So with that background, it's not surprising that microcredit has caught the imagination of many. It offers the allure of development alchemy. It suggests that the poor are a good investment. And there's that tantalizing evidence seen across a number of microcredit institutions that the credit quality of a portfolio of microloans is no worse and sometimes perhaps better than the portfolio of more normally sized loans in developed economies. Grameen's ratio of non-performing loans to, to capital and total loans is in line with the best institutions elsewhere, where you would have thought the average credit quality of borrowers was higher. Consequently, there is no shortage of microcredit institutions and donors wanting to set them up. So what holds it back? You may be surprised by me asking that question. Microcredit in some places seems like a booming business. But Grameen began in 1976, almost 30 years ago, and was not the first. Yet less than 2% of the world's poor are touched by microcredit in some way. And those that are, are geographically highly concentrated. 75% of all microcredit borrowers around the world live in Asia. 10% in one country alone, Bangladesh. There is tiny penetration in Africa or Latin America. And it's also interesting that despite the compelling economics I mentioned before, I could see Jack the banker being very interested uh, in that. Despite that, the vast majority of microcredit institutions are touched in some way by development agencies, by developed country donors. It's very rare to find a microcredit bank that is purely commercial. Look behind that promise of hard-nosed finance and you'll find some government-related donor, sponsor, subsidy provider, or investor. Now, I hope my friends in the public sector don't take offense of this, but I find this a bit odd because the public sector is not an easy shareholder. It's not in the business these days, at least, of owning shares in commercial companies. They only do so to pursue a particular agenda that ha may have more to do with voters back home 
than poor entrepreneurs. So if you had a choice, a public sector shareholder or not, I doubt the public sector shareholder, if you had a choice, would be the top of your list. Which is not to say that the public sector should not be a partner, but it is to say that the omnipresence of the public sector in this industry is telling us something about the commercial viability of this model. If microcredit worked, why are the banks not major investors? With their economies of scale, their long distribution arms, their expertise as credit monitors. Not all banks, but why not some banks? And there are, of course, fine exceptions to this rule. Indeed, this is another interesting feature of microcredit institutions. The successful, like Grameen Bank and others, Shore Capital, are often exceptional in some way. And despite many attempts, their success in one region is not easily transferred to others. Grameen works in rural Bangladesh. Arguably, it works spectacularly well. But there are few examples of successful migration of this model from Bangladesh to Africa or Latin America. They are pockets of success, but they don't appear scalable. So why? I think there's a simple explanation for the two characteristics of microcredit we've talked about just now. The absence of commercial scale and the difficulty of transferring these models from different countries. A bank's profit on a loan, let's say a bank has made a loan to you, the profit the bank makes on the loan is some percentage of the size of the loan. If a bank borrows at 5% and then lends to you at 10%, it's making the difference at 5 percentage points. It's part of its revenues. And of course, 5% of a uh, of a $100 loan is $5. 5% of a $10,000 loan is $500. The bigger the loan, the more revenues that the bank is making. Yet, the cost of providing that loan, the cost of doing the credit monitoring, of making available the facilities, they don't tend to rise so much with a loan. It's only partially connected with the size of a loan. It costs me about the same amount at a very basic level. It costs me about the same amount to find out whether you, if you've come to me as a bank, you are who you say you are. You live where you say you live. That costs me the same whether you're a millionaire or a pauper. Indeed, if you're a millionaire, it might actually be easier because someone's already done that check on you, so I could find that out uh, more easily. It's one of the reasons why I'm sure you've all had this experience. If you've had a, it's easier for you to get credit today if you've got a whopping big mortgage than if you had no debt at all. So banks, therefore, will lend down to the amount where the cost of credit monitoring and account handling equal the expected profit on providing that loan. And consequently, in general, they don't offer microloans as a business. And those that do charge very high interest rates. This, incidentally, is why you have loan sharks. You probably thought it was just because they were unethical people, but that's the economics of microloans. They're small loans, high interest rates to make them profitable. 
Now, the lower the fixed costs of monitoring and delivering a loan, the smaller the loans are that the banks can possibly, uh, can profitably uh, pursue. Successful microcredit institutions are those that have found some way of lowering those costs, lowering credit monitoring costs, often by utilizing social capital. For example, in Grameen's original lending system, you had to approach Grameen as part of a group. Normally the groups were around four or five. And so the group needed each other. You got the loan because you were part of a group. And this became a powerfully supportive network for each other in this group. And one of the costs of default, not something you see easily monetized, but one of the costs of default was letting your group down. Social capital is immensely important concept that doesn't just reside in this alternative area. If we were to define it as what in the absence of coercive force makes people keep their promises, it's one of the most important considerations when the commercial sector makes an investment or not. It's all the things that lead you to trust investors or borrowers. If there's trust between you and an investor or borrower, if only because of the deep loss uh, of, of face um, that would happen if that trust is broken, you don't need to know much about them if you trust them. You don't need to know their maiden name, where they've lived for the past 20 years. So if a microfinance institution has found a way to tap into social capital, and as a result, it can lower the costs, the monitoring, initiating, delivering costs of that loan, it could be sustainable without the public sector involvement. But there are a couple of challenges with a credit model based on social capital. First, it's not easily scalable or transportable. Social capital is not plentiful everywhere, and more importantly, it takes on a different form in different places. The social context, which means that Bangladeshi women in the village of Jorba, collected into groups, don't default, is not the prevailing social context amongst urban Bangladeshi women, or women in Kiev, or men in Mozambique. Second, where social capital is leveraged through social networks, it is linked in some way to the prevailing social norms, social norms and hierarchies. There is some evidence that the main beneficiaries of many microfinance institutions like these are those that are perceived to be pillars of the local society such as the local landowner, or the local boy or girl who's done well, got a professional qualification in town, and come back to the village. They're not exactly entrepreneurs, though. And without overdoing the social profiling, entrepreneurs can often be mavericks that don't easily fit in to an existing social system. So social capital should play an important role. But relying on social networks has its limitations. Now, to try and fill in this gap, the public sector gets involved, sponsoring microcredit institutions, where they may not otherwise spring up. And often, most often, this is done 
with the best and most noble of intentions. But the involvement can have an adverse impact in two ways. First, as we hinted earlier, the public sector is involved to pursue its own agenda, a social agenda. And there are often very tough restrictions on who the microcredit institution can now lend to in terms of the people, the community, the activities they're involved in. This only increases the monitoring costs of providing this loan and guarantees that the only way small loans can be delivered is through subsidy. Secondly, these subsidies can be dealing with the inefficiencies of the particular microfinance institution. But it prices the private sector and the commercial sector out of that area. And this helps explain, I think, why microcredit has not caught on in terms of actual impact and actual spread and scale. It's why generally there are always so the public sector attempt to kickstart an industry has often simply led to a large number of small microcredit institutions, some more successful than others, but all with limited scale and impact. Our view is to go back to the economics of the sector. The challenge is to come up with innovative ways to lower the monetary costs of initiating, monitoring, and processing alone. Not to burden these costs further with too many conflicting priorities. Not to price out the commercial sector, but to encourage it. Because it alone can deliver the necessary scale if you wish to touch more and more poor people. And not to rely on models of social capital that may work elsewhere, but are not tried at home. Here is a novel alternative idea, a new way of tapping into social capital that's not dependent on social networks. It's to leverage off existing working networks. For example, where there is an electricity company with extensive coverage and strong payment histories, microcredit could be delivered via the electricity company, initiating monitoring and processing costs of the bank providing the capital are brought right down to a bare minimum by determining the loan agreement and size entirely on the available electricity payments data. Now critics will jump and say that this will not get to the poor, that you end up knowing very little about the borrowers and there is legitimacy to these concerns. But utility coverage in developing countries has changed dramatically over the past 20 years through investment, privatization perhaps, of electricity and telephone systems. And more recently, the contracting out of payment systems. Today, electricity coverage in rural Brazil is 90%, 9-0. In urban Brazil, it's 99%. Many of these users are poor and without bank accounts. Rural electricity coverage in North Africa and East Asia is 80%. 99% in urban Latin America, rest of uh, Latin America, North Africa and East Asia. 
where this will not work, and where coverage is particularly low, is in rural sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. And yes, you won't know much about these borrowers, but that is the point of the social capital model. An individual's regular payment history at the electricity company reveals the presence of social capital, and we're lending on that through a portfolio. There are a couple of points I want to address before I close. First, using the social capital revealed in payment histories of the utility company will not meet the poorest of the poor. There is, however, I have to say, mixed evidence on how far microcredit reaches these people as well. Moreover, the best way of breaking the cycle of poverty is not through a $10 loan, but providing access to collateral, which in most cases means owning a piece of land. Lease purchase agreements, where families can purchase land through long-term payment facilities, which allow for temporary periods of difficulty, will have the biggest impact on rural poverty. The revolution that is required here is not so much more microcredit, but agents which buy the land for the poor and have them pay back these larger loans through long-term, high-frequency micropayments like putting coins into electricity meter every week. And here, social capital is acting as collateral for that loan. The utility solution could address a further problem we find in credit availability in most developing countries. And this has been described as the hourglass problem. The very poor get access to subsidized credit through a government or donor microfinance institution. The rich get access to credit from the banks. The middle sector does not. And this is the more established self-employed person or the small company. They fall in between these cracks. We may feel less urgent about the sector. These are not the poorest of the poor, but they are, in fact, the engine of the economy. These people are users of utilities and have good payment records, and the utility model we suggested may be a good way of extending credit to them. In conclusion, the key to scaling up microfinance so that it becomes a motor to economic development and touches not the fringes of the poor in Asia, but the poor everywhere, is to find innovative ways to reduce the costs of initiating, monitoring, and processing small loans. Public sector involvement in microcredit often, though by no means always, serves to do the opposite. In order to satisfy the public sector's sensibilities and political priorities, loan monitoring costs are higher than otherwise. Relying on social capital rather than traditional collateral or credit checks is a promising route. However, measuring social capital through social networks has its limits. It may not easily find those entrepreneurial mavericks. It may be biased to the chiefs of the local social systems, and it will not be easily scalable 
or transportable. There may be, to end, alternative ways to tap social capital. One way we suggest is to use the effectiveness of other networks to measure the presence of social capital. Utility coverage is just one example, and coverage has been quite extensive. This is a practical solution in Latin America, the very north and south of Africa and East Asia. Using utilities as agents of microcredit may also help to support the small and medium enterprises who are the engines of these economies. Finally, though, the poor are a good investment and $25 can sustain a farmer and help to break her out of the cycle of poverty. But to really do so, she needs to own her own land. This is one of the reasons why land is such an emotive issue in Southern Africa today. We need to turn the attention of the financial sector, the financial industry in developing countries, towards facilitating the purchase of land through large loans, not microloans, and allowing micropayments to service these loans, linked perhaps to the performance of the land. We have not touched on development issues much in this lecture series as it comes to a close. But at the end of the day, Poverty remains humanity's biggest challenge. And finance can, and I hope will, play its part in overcoming it. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm happy to take any questions here, or if you wish later, we can have a drink in the next room. Any burning questions? Um, so, two up here first. You have to decide who goes first. Um, I know there is a microcredit movement in this country. What do they actually do? Well, there are many examples of microcredit, and, and it does um, make it difficult to try and ca categorize it. It happens in rural areas in terms of agriculture, trying to support very small farmers. Uh, especially through the cycle of uh, borrowing money to perhaps invest in the land in a particular year when it's been a difficult year. Mainly, you come across them in the urban sector. Uh, and in particular, there have been a number of social credit unions uh, trying to help people in purchasing their uh, or getting into uh, property. Uh, a lot of microcredit internationally and in developed countries is actually related to housing. Britain. Yes. You're saying that applies? Yes. You didn't say whether there were, um, whether they, how they investigated what the loan was for. I know, for instance, that there are charities that um, loan, particularly to women, uh, to start little businesses, but also help them with the design of the business and, and the tools of the business. Now. Can you say what are the majority of these loans are for? And if bolstering a whole improvement in the economy of the country? Well, again, it's a very large and varied industry, so it's hard to categorize one way. Certainly, the way most microcredit 
has begun in Asia, which is the dominant area, has been via lending to women, uh, family, uh, to women uh, farmers primarily in agriculture and helping to promote uh, the farms. Uh, and uh, it's also in terms of entrepreneurs of women. I mentioned Grameen Phone, for example, where women have got together to uh, get a loan to buy a mobile phone. And then their business is selling uh, individual uh, calls. So there are a number of activities, but it tends to be rural-focused and agriculture-related. Now, remember, though, that one of the problems is the monitoring costs of the loan. Ideally, we would love to give a, if a $25 loan is sufficient to get someone into business and to make themselves sustainable, and partly through uh, giving lots of advice through networks of other business people, that would be ideal. But that would be extremely costly per loan. And that would make it very hard to actually do that. Now, there have been attempts to try and do that in different ways. So try to connect um, entrepreneurs with other entrepreneurs uh, to learn from their experience, be part of a group of entrepreneurs. There have been um, attempts to set up in parallel but unconnected to the bank, the microcredit organization, um, business training places. So there are many attempts to try and deal with that. But I think that we will never find a good solution because the good solution is a kind of care and attention that an individual entrepreneur needs that will be extremely costly to deliver. And I think the best hope is via getting entrepreneurs together uh, into groups where they can help to learn from each other's experience. Um, Avi, do you know whether the um, Islamic development banks or financing institutions have entered yet into the field of microcredit? And how is microcredit actually seen in terms of Sharia law? I'm not an expert on that. I would have said that it would be tough for them, given Sharia law. Because these are very clearly... Uh, loans with interest. Now, what we in the financial sector do when faced with sharing law is find ways of, uh, of, of the loan. Uh, you, you, can, uh, you can have loans which don't have interest, zero coupon, um, where they repay uh, their repayment in a, in a final lump sum, maybe higher to compensate for the interest. There are lots of different ways of doing that, but I haven't come across uh, lots of examples of that. I think it would be tough. That said, the Islamic development uh, agencies, of which there are many, uh, are heavily involved in trying to support uh, it, many of these institutions in some way or the other, maybe as an equity investor. So you may find them and, and um, come along to our lecture on June the 6th on Islamic finance, but you may find them owning an equity stake in a bank that gives loans, and I'm not sure how they justify that. Harvey, could you give us a bit of exegesis on this uh... <laughs> graph you've got up there. Is it denominated in some currency like US dollars on both axes? I, I was trying to, to ignore this chart. As yeah. I, I thought I'd succeeded, but clearly, yeah. <laughs> clearly not. Because I, I, I think it's not quite formulated correctly on the scale. So if you forget the scale for mm. the moment, this uh, is a chart describing the cost and revenue problem. Uh, and the blue line is the revenues that a bank gets from giving loans. Uh, it's actually using real data, so the horizontal scale is correct. Uh, so that's saying that um, 
you know, the, the bigger the loan, the higher the revenues the bank is getting. And then the yellow line is supposed to be the cost of delivering this loan. I think that number, I'm not sure how that number's been calculated, but um, the point is focus on the profile, if not the numbers. And this actually, I think, illustrates the point fairly powerfully that the cost of delivering the, ro of the loan does not increase whether the loan is a $100 loan or a $1,000 loan. And therefore, um, what it's saying is that the optimal level at which the banks will lend is the intersection of those two lines. This point here. Because if they lend anything lower than that, the cost of the loan is greater than the revenues. Anything higher than that, the revenues are greater than the cost. So banks will not lend below that amount. So what you want to do is you want to lower that, that cost line. And if you lower the cost line, here's an example, they will suddenly find it profitable to lend as low as this. That's the idea of this chart. I hope. Well, we also need to know the time of, of repayment. Because, yes, and uh, I think that... You know, if they're making... If you borrow a thousand at the extreme right of the bottom axis, the horizontal axis, it looks as though the bank makes approximately a thousand profit, but you don't know over what period. So, it, you know, what's the rate of interest? It's very difficult yeah. to interpret. The, that's a good point because I think many of the microfinance organisations reveal very high loan repayments partly because they restructure the loans and change the repayment periods. But the average interest rate is 22% per year. So the longer the loan outstanding, the greater the total repayment. There's a question at the back there. Is gold jewelry still effectively the security of the Bangladesh ladies borrowing? Well, Grameen Bank will say uh, strongly it takes no security, it does not require any collateral, that in the lending to groups there's no joint liability, uh, and indeed Grameen um, has a very informative website. Mohammed Yunus claims to be the founder of microcredit, and some people may disagree with that statement, but he certainly had a very important and powerful impact on the global industry of microcredit. Uh, and look at his website, um, grameen.com, which is extremely informative. And they'll say there's no security. Th there was a question in the back I want to, uh, someone who knows about microcredit. Um, I, more than a question, I wanted to make a comment. My name's Claire Caffrey. I'm from the Community Development Finance Association. Um, it's a trade association that's operating in the UK, and it's particularly uh, a question that was um, asked of, was there microcredit in the UK? Um, and the answer is yes. Um, there are a couple of uh, organisations that are operating microcredit, um, but what we're seeing in the UK is uh, a larger community development finance, so not just concentrating on microcredit, but uh, providing social enterprise lending um, and also personal lending. Um, and if anyone's interested in that, I'll, I'll stay towards the end. But uh, interesting presentation, and I think the electricity side is something I'll uh, be taking back to my members and challenging them with. Thank you. I have a, a question over here. Um, I was interested in, in you saying that the concept didn't always travel well. Um, perhaps you could give us an insight into the 
sort of the difference in, in credit unions between the UK and the US, where I understand they're very successful and have m many of the population involved in credit unions, whereas in the UK they haven't really taken off. They're a bit sort of pumping along the bottom. I wouldn't say the concept doesn't travel well. I think the concept people recognize around the world. And then we say, okay, we all like this idea. Let's try and find out how we do it. And we try and take a, a, a model. And the models have not transferred well. And I think the reason why is back to this point about social capital, which is that the successful ones have tapped in to how to uh, recognize and take advantage of social capital in that particular context. Women in Bangladesh, and they have a very, a Grameen Bank was set up at, at that place, the default rates are particularly low, and people looked at that and said, it's fantastic, and they tried to set a similar system up in the uh, shanty towns around Sao Paulo and Brazil on many occasions, and it doesn't work there. Now, it's not because the concept of microcredit, I think, doesn't work, it's because that particular model made sense in Bangladesh. And so I think that what you will find is uh, a number of successful microcredit type of institutions um, around the world, all with very unique and specific aspects to them. And the problem with that is it then becomes not a very scalable model. So we're not touching enough people. It's not a way in which we can uh, revolutionize poverty and, and uh, uh, and make poverty history, as they say in the current slogan. It's not going to happen because, in this particular case, because these models are not very scalable. We need to find more scalable ways of achieving this. Uh, yeah, could I suggest that uh, uh, the whole principle of borrowing is um, encouraging people to live beyond their means this may be all right uh, when they're used to being uh, restricted to their own means and having a very poor standard of living. But once they uh, get uh, conditioned to this idea that it's okay to borrow and live beyond your means, that might take a generation or two. But um, this, of course, will, once it starts, is going to escalate and escalate and have more fraud as well. I think that a very important point is to make the distinction between solvency and liquidity. And that a lot of people in microfinance don't make that distinction. We're not saying that we should lend money to people who are not solvent. We're saying that we should lend money to people who actually have an asset. Now, the asset may be themselves. It may be their skills. It may be their commitment and their effort and their work. But they have an asset. And, we, and that asset is not something they can monetize easily. You can't walk into a bank and say, look, I've worked you know, 40 hour weeks, uh, how, whatever the current legislation is, uh, for you know, the last 20 years, and I will continue doing so for the next 20 years. Can I borrow some money, please? No. Uh, and a lot of microcredit institutions are about allowing people to release that asset and to make it into liquidity. What would be very dangerous is if we start approaching levels of debt which actually imply insolvency. Uh, and uh, I think that, um, that that is an important distinction and not enough attention is paid to that. 
An insolvent person may need help, may need money, but a loan is not the solution. <laughs> Great. Well, um, one last question from Albert. It's all about added value. And, and how is it going to be repaid? You're lending to people to add value. And it makes a, it, it sounds tremendously social. And, and it's, it goes back to the time of, of farmers borrowing on the seed and paying back on the harvest. And I, I, I just felt there was, should be more emphasis on where the added value is coming from. I think that's a very uh, important point. We, we mentioned it, for those of you who are here, I think at the very first lecture of this series, about one of the problems about banking regulation today is it actually doesn't seem to recognize what banks are supposed to do in terms of adding value. And the value a bank can add is by saying that because I know this client so well, I've invested in this sector with knowledge in these borrowers. I will lend to those people even though other people will not lend. And alternatively, because I know this sector and client well, I will not lend to them even though other people are lending to them. That is where banks add value and they should get paid for that service. And unfortunately, our banking regulation is actually penalizing uh, their, their willingness to do things differently. When it comes to microcredit, though, I think the, the way they're adding value is saying that these individuals, through some evidence, recognition, have an asset. That asset could be that they work extremely hard on their farm, but they cannot walk into a traditional bank and monetize that asset. And where these microcredit institutions are adding value is saying there is something here, call it social capital, whatever, and we will find ways of monetizing it. And their repayment rates generally are very high, so in large part, they have found something. Thank you very much indeed. There should be a glass of something in the room across. I hope you'll all join me for further conversation. Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.